chapter 1, verses um, 1 through 18, you can find on page 241 in your Old Testament, um, in the Old Testament section of the Pew Bible. We are finishing up our sermon series, part of our sermon series, titled, I've Been Meaning to Ask, and the part of the sermon series that comes from the um, group called Sanctified Art. And we had a really, have a really good time um, at uh, Bub's and Spanky Coffee Company um, during a Bible study on this specific, um, these specific readings and using their literature to help us um, with our Bible study. And if we have one more Bible study, the last one will be on Wednesday at 1130. These do not build on top of each other, so if you are interested in coming, we would love to, uh, love to have you uh, this Wednesday if you have not been to one. But through this series, we've asked questions. Uh, where are you from? We've asked the question of what do you need? Where does it hurt? These are questions that, yeah, we ask to one another, but we have been pushing ourselves to ask the community around us as we all engage with each other again, as we all encounter one another again. And our last question that we'll ask from this series is where do we go from here? And help us turn to where we go from here. We turn to Ruth. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. I invite you now to listen to the word of our Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judea went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elmelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. The names of his sons were Malon and Chalon. They were Ephrathites by Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. When they, lived, when they, lived, when they had lived there about ten years, both Melon and Chalon also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-laws from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food now. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-laws, and they went on the way to go back to the land of Judea. But Naomi said to the, her two daughters-in-laws, Go back, each of you, to your, un, to your own mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of, of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband, even if I thought there was hope for me. Even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. 
It has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. She said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you. I turn my back from following you. Will you go? I will go. Will you lodge? I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Will you die? I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as you as well. If even death parts from me, from, from you, me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. An estimated 55 million people globally are affected by droughts every year. Droughts, uh, they say, threaten people's livelihoods and increase the risk of deaths and disease. And they, droughts, that is, fuels a mass migration, more mass migration than anything else. Water scarcity affects about 40% of the world's population. And 700 million people are at risk of being displaced as a result of a drought by the year of 2030. According to the most recent UN report, disasters are happening more often today than they did, three times more often today than they did in the 1980s. And drought is leading that cause, a disaster. Over the past few years, what we've seen is our drier land become drier and our wetlands become wetter. This is not only affecting developing countries, but we are seeing the effects of droughts here in the United States, especially in the North Pacific this summer, with more wildfires and communities busting in water. As Christians, we have a responsibility to see these droughts and changes and be moved to action. As we discussed here last week, through the cross, we know that this is where we will find Jesus. And anytime there's a drought or disaster, God's, what we believe is God's heart breaks first and fastest. And this is how the book of Ruth begins. With God's heart breaking and a family trying to survive in the midst of a drought. In the days when the judges ruled, the book of Ruth begins. There was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. As often as part of this first chapter of Ruth is read, we find it being read at weddings. It was read in my wedding, in me and Allie's wedding. But we can see with this first line of Ruth, there's something more to it than a wedding reading. Yes, this is a story of love. It's really a story not of a man and woman in love, but two women clinging together. Two women clinging together with nothing more in common 
than the grief of family. This is a love story that goes beyond any wedding. As appropriate it is for weddings. As beautiful it is at weddings. But it's a love story. It's a love story about community. About restoration. It's a story about God's restoration. As I just mentioned, droughts and famines and natural disasters are very serious. And when they occur, like we said, God's heart breaks. And our heart should follow God's. And not to minimize the seriousness of this issue, but as one scholar suggests, metaphorically, we've all experienced a drought. These are times in our lives that we have felt empty. As intelligent people, we feel this drought within our own lives. We start recognizing this void. As intelligent people, we begin to pray, we begin to contemplate how that we can fill the void that is inside of us, this drought that is inside of us, this drought that Elam felt and Naomi felt. So what we do is we make a move. We make a move to try to fill this void. The move could be whatever. We could go back to school, change jobs, get married, get divorced, go to a doctor. Start a book club, start exercising, volunteer more, schedule more free time, work harder, move to a new town. Make these moves with the hopes that this move that we just made will quench the hunger and the thirst that we desire, that we're being left empty. When famine broke out in the land of Judea, Elmelech and Naomi moved for search of a better life. But not long after they move, Elmelech dies. The two sons married Moab women, Orpah and Ruth. And ten years later, then both of their sons die, leaving Naomi and her two daughters-in-laws with no husband. A drought. Coming on this passage, Craig Barnes stated that this is the problem with making moves in search of a better life. We confront choices all the time. Every single day we have choices to make. And we are are called to be good stewards with these choices that we have to make. We're also called to make moves in our lives from time to time. And it's not a bad thing to make a move. Often moves help our lives. But here's the thing with moves. Just don't expect these moves to save you. For salvation will always need a savior. So here's the problem with expecting that move to save you. And whether you choose Judea or Moab or college or career or stay together or divorce, surgery or holistic healing, sooner or later, down the road, there'll be another drought. There's always another drought. And ten years later, 
Naomi's sons died. None of us can escape the droughts of our lives. So Naomi looks at her two daughter-in-laws and tells both of them to go back. It's interesting how often the words go back is used in this text. Uh, when we are in grief, that is what we long for. We, we long to go back. Someone dies. Our girl crushes our heart. We have a terrible car accident. We lose a job. All we would do is want to just go back to the way it was. We say, if things could just go back to the way it was, life would be so much better. But then we're also told, you can't go back. Don't go back. Move forward. That is the only way to solve your grief, by just moving forward. Plow ahead, they say. Forget the past, they say. Don't look back, they say. However, what we do know from our own experience is that all this does, if we only move back, move forward, it all it does is just suppress our grief. Only for the grief to show back up in different ways. Richard Rohr states that grief that is not transformed just gets transmitted. That's not moving forward, suppressing our grief. What that is, is hoping that our move solves our problems. But here's a challenge. Here's a challenge of, of, of going back, and we've all experienced this before, that if we go back, what we do know is never the same. When Naomi goes back to Judea, she goes back without a husband, without her two sons. She goes back with this foreign daughter-in-law clinging to her. But I believe that God does call us back before God moves us forward. Not for us to go back yearning for the time the way it used to be. But God calls us back to restore us. And this restoration begins with grief. God calls us, yes, to remember. To remember and to mourn the loss of that, what we have lost. But also to celebrate and to give thanks of the joyful times. God's restoration for you and for me lies somewhere in between our grief and moving forward. This is seen in the prophets throughout the entire Old Testament. But they acknowledge great pain when the Israelites are exiled. And they speak the voice of God. In this great pain, they speak the voice of God. And God says to them, yes, in your pain, but I will restore you. Over and over again, God tells them, I will restore you. So what if? What if the season that we find the church in right now is just that? What if we're in a season of restoration? And the season can be hard for all of, the, all of us who yearn to plow ahead and just move forward to, to fix this void that we fill. It can be equally as hard for all of us who remember those Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, yearning for those times to come back when the whole town was dedicated to church. But what if, 
As we've said before, God not, did not cause COVID. Yet, God is using this opportunity to restore. Not only you and me, but to restore the church. Here's what we all know. This pandemic is disruptive. And it's something disruptive with this type of size of magnitude that this pandemic has had. It's way too big for the world not to change. For the world not to reestablish itself. You can go back in history and see this over and over and over and over again. Anytime the world goes through something this magnitude, it always comes out different. The question to the church is, we'd be so worried about going back to the way it was, or so eager to move forward, to fill some type of void, that we failed to cling to God, so that God can transform us as God is changing the world. That's what it means. That's what it means to look for a Savior to save us. Our Savior would not just put us back to the way it was. Our Savior saves us always. Our Savior saves us by changing us. In some way, the mystery and the grace, our relationship with God transforms us. What was weak has become strong in God. What was sinful has become clean in God. What was broken has become healed in God. What was dead has become alive in God. This is what is seen in the life and the death of Jesus Christ. With all the monumental decisions and choices that Jesus faced, Jesus did not trust his life and his death to his moves. Jesus trusts his life and his death to God. Jesus clings to God because God clings to Jesus. And because of that relationship, we call Jesus our Savior. A few years ago, a friend of mine visited Los Angeles and had the opportunity to visit Homeboy Industries. We've we've talked about Homeboy Industries a few times here. Um, Father Greg... Bull is a person who started this amazing ministry in helping gang members and former gang members get out of that life into a, a better life of hope, hopefulness and faith. Well, my friend was there um, visiting Homeboy Industries. He stopped by and had lunch at Homegirl Cafe. And a Homegirl Cafe is a breakfast and lunch spot that is opened and staffed completely by people who are out of gangs and those that are trying to get out of gangs. And they're led to the table by their hostess who had this huge bandage on her neck who was trying to get rid of, in a a slow and painful way, all those gang tattoos that reminded of her and marked her of who they said she was. Later, I overheard her talking, my friend said to me, to a colleague saying how grateful that she was for the job that she had and not, as she says, to be working the streets any longer. The man who brought us lunch had gang tattoos every place that I could see, but those 
but whose smile and eye contact seemed newly learned, but still steady and authentic. Is everything okay? He asked when he left us for food. But he seemed really to be asking that question about himself as much as it was about the food. And finally, after lunch, we headed our way into a store that sells T-shirts and hats to help raise money for the ministry. The cashier was a young man, again, bearing all signs of former gang life. And he said to my friend and to everyone else in that little small store, if you have any questions, ask me. Ask me anything. Um, ask me about the T-shirts. Ask me about the hats. Ask me about Homeboy Industries. You can ask me anything seriously. Seriously, ask. Ask about my life. I'm here to tell you. I was gone. Now I'm here. As I listened, it occurred to me at that moment that they were like everyone else here. We are what we always see. Really, we're just a collection of the grateful. Those are still not believing. The crucified. The hurt. Those just hoping to be remembered. Those that were dead and who are now alive. And those that are alive yet still can't quite believe all this is really true. We're a collection of people brought together by the Holy Spirit. So perhaps, perhaps what we do right now is withhold asking that question. Where do we go from here? And instead, stay in this season. A season of preparation. Clinging to Jesus. Which by definition means clinging to one another. Trusting that God is at work. Restoring and saving you and me and everyone in this room and the church and the world. Who knows? Perhaps it was that season of preparation that began when Ruth clings to Naomi. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, a child was born in a manger. Ruth, she called him great, 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 great grandson. We called him, and still do, Savior. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.